don't mind, will you join me in a word of prayer before we begin? Good and loving God, we do thank you again for today. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for time set aside to meditate upon it. God, we thank you too for a new year, new beginnings, new endings, God, and a new part of the story that you're writing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am going to read some scripture in a moment, um, but I kind of want to do it in the middle of my sermon, and that'll, I hope, make more sense as we go along. It could not make any sense, though, and just be, you know, a disaster. So, <laughs> um, you know, as a, as a young Presbyterian pastor, one of the privileges that I get is doing uh, a lot of funerals uh, for folks, saints that have passed on, people that helped build churches and found faith communities. And um, I really do consider it an honor and a privilege. Actually, when we were um, sort of uh, in the interview process for coming to Fort Street, the, the committee that was in charge of bringing us in asked, what's one of your favorite parts about ministry? And um, I, I forget what you said, Sarah. It was like children in worship and in being innovative, disruption things. And I was like, I love doing funerals. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like, really? And I thought, oh, well, there goes that job opportunity. <laughs> Note to self, do not tell people you like doing funerals. Um, but it, it, it's true only because one of the things that I struggle with sometimes as a Presbyterian minister, and, and this isn't anything major, but it, it's sometimes like what value do I bring to the culture still? You know, like what, what do people get out of church? What do you want from a minister? What are the things that you're looking for, and I, I never ask that question when I'm doing a funeral, ever, ever, ever. I know what people want. I know sort of what they're looking for, and I know that it, it's good to have a minister around or at least someone directing the funeral. And so I, I love it, but I'm also invited into really sacred spaces during funerals. People will share parts of their lives that they don't share at any other time. People are vulnerable in ways that they're not normally vulnerable, and people I found are so, so grateful during those periods of time. And, I, and, and so I, I love it. I love it. I, I also love it because I get so many cool new stories uh, from folks' lives, and especially people that have been in the church for so, so long. There was one woman, when I, uh, when I first started, um, like actually my first day as a pastor, <laughs> I was... Um, I was asked to do a funeral, and I'm, I'm going to give you a little secret. Uh, they do not teach you in seminary, at least seminary I went to, and that is no shot at my alma mater, okay? They do not teach you how to do funerals, okay? No one, no one sits you down and says, here's your funeral class. We're going to walk you through how to do this. You just kind of have to figure it out. So my first day as a pastor ever, I got a call at 9.30 in the morning, and I'd, I'd been on the job 30 minutes, and they said, hey, so-and-so passed. We need you to do the funeral can you meet at 10 o'clock at this place? I was like, oh, sure. And they said, bring your plan and, and be ready. I brought no plan. I wasn't ready. I basically just said, I have no idea what I'm doing, but can you walk me through it? And I sort of stumbled through that first one, and I, I didn't know the, the woman that had passed, but uh, I, I sort of gathered all these stories, and when it came time for the eulogy, a lot of people told me, they were like, wow, it's like you knew her for 100 years. And I was like, oh, 
I felt like I didn't know what was going on at all. About a year and a half went by, and um, I had done, I think to that point, probably 12 or 13 funerals. I was getting pretty good at it. And um, not, yeah, not something you probably want to get good at, but I, I, I was in a flow, and um, I, there was this woman I, I spent a lot of time with. We're, we're, we'll call her Helen this morning. Helen was one of the deacons at the church I previously served, and she took her role as, as deacon very, very seriously. Um, she loved people so well, but, but she also just loved the church. And, and so one of the things Helen would do is uh, she organized all of our in-home communion visits. And there are actually quite a bit. And, and she and I would hang out. She was kind of my communion buddy. And we would go around to the different houses in the community, and we would serve communion to our, our shut-ins and do a little prayer service for them. And it was, it was always a fun time. And she also organized... Uh, communion and church services for folks at retirement centers, and um, she would uh, meet like once a month at these different, I think there were three different ones in town, and we would have a Presbyterian service at each one each month, and Helen organized all of that, and she always got the communion bread ready, she always got the juice ready, and I would always say something like, Helen, can I help you with any of this, and she would say, no, 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 you can't help, just show up, just be there. Okay, I'll be there. So for a year and a half, we tagged, you know, tagged around and did our thing. And um, Helen would, she was, she was a nice lady, but she also was of the age that she didn't really care what she said to me. <laughs> you know, no filter ever, just whatever was on her mind. And often it was very gracious and good, but there was one time she, she asked to talk to me and... Um, she asked to meet at her house, which was kind of strange because normally we would get coffee or she would come to my office, but she needed to meet at her house because she said she wasn't feeling well. And so I went and I met with her and um, we had a really good conversation. She told me a lot of stories of her life, really opened up to me. And at the end, she, she sort of leaned into me. We were sitting at her table. She leans into me and she reaches out to take my hands. She's holding both my hands. She looks me in the eye and she goes, Garrett, Whatever you do as a pastor, don't you let that church turn into a daycare center. <laughs> and, you know, if that sounds like it's out of left field, it was. I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, so I asked a few clarifying questions, and she felt like there was this trend in churches that uh, churches were kind of becoming like babysitters. And that, you know, she felt like some parents were dropping their kids off at our church and then not coming to service, and she didn't want any of this. And so she gave me this big charge, don't let it become a daycare center. And then she had these other things, you know, don't let this happen, don't let this happen, don't let this happen. And she's saying all this as if it's the last time we're going to speak. I got a call the next morning that Helen had passed away. And um, they wanted to know if I could do the funeral. I said, yeah, and I was, I was pretty shocked because we'd been serving communion together, we'd been leading worship services around town together, and I had just sat across from her at her table the day before as she kind of unloaded on me all of her thoughts about what the church should be. And, and I found it actually really difficult to do her funeral because I didn't even know anything was wrong, and I felt bad for that. I felt like I should have known. I felt like I should have had more information, but come to find out, no one knew. 
that Helen had been struggling with a certain type of cancer for about a year and a half. And she didn't tell anybody. <laughs> and she didn't want to tell anybody, her daughter told me, because she just wanted to do what she loved. She didn't want to spend her last years going to treatment. She didn't want to go to all the doctor's appointments. She didn't, she didn't want any of that. And, and you might judge whether that's good or bad, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's virtuous. This is what she chose. And she wanted to spend time being with the people she loved, serving the way that she loved, and doing the things that brought her life for so long. And so when I stood up to eulogize her, it was actually a packed house because she was a, she was a huge member of that community and she had made an impact on so many people's lives. And um, I'm not kidding when I say there was not a dry eye <laughs> in the sanctuary. And not, not because of pretty words that I was saying, but just because of what a great loss it was and how sudden it felt. And um, after, after the service, after the eulogy and all that, I was kind of greeting people on their way out of the church and saying hi and I'm sorry for your loss and just kind of catching up. And this one woman comes through and we'll call her Jane. Jane <coughs> stopped at the door. She grabs my hand and she was like, oh, pastor, that was such a beautiful eulogy. Those were such wonderful stories you told. What a great way to commemorate her life. What a powerful, powerful message. And then she said, do you think we could meet Monday morning at 10 a.m.? <laughs> and I said, sure, we can meet Monday morning at 10 a.m. What do you want to talk about? She's like, I'd like to plan my funeral. <laughs> and, and, and actually, I mean, you groan, but like, it's actually a good practice, um, not, not to be morbid, but to plan out, like, how, how do you want the service to look? These are often the most difficult questions for family members that lose someone, because we, we just don't think that way. So it can be a good exercise to sit down with your pastor and kind of ask, like, what, what do I want that service to look like? What songs do I want to sing? What liturgies? You know, what things do I want to incorporate? It can be a good practice. But, but when Jane showed up, um, in my office at 10 a.m., she had a full list, and you think I'm joking, <laughs> she had a full list of things that she wanted me to say about her at her funeral whenever she passed. I'm not going to talk about the things that she wanted to say. I think it's probably too personal. It was difficult not to laugh in that moment. But I also saw some humanity in Jane there that I want to touch on this morning. And that is that e each and every one of us, I think at some point, even if it's just this morning right now, have wondered, how are we going to be remembered as, as individuals? How, how are we going to be remembered? What are people going to say about me after I'm gone? What's the unique thing that I'll leave behind? What legacy will I have? What stories will be told when I'm no longer here? And these were all the things that were going through Jane's head, and what she wanted was to control the narrative about her life. But she wanted to do it by telling other people what to say, not necessarily by acting it out and living it. 
And we all have been there at some point, right? We've all wondered this, we've all thought about the end, we've all thought about these stories, and we've all wanted a kind of story to be told about us. He was kind, he was gracious, he was generous, and oh my gosh, you should have heard his sermons. And his once beautiful red hair. We've all wondered, haven't we? We've all wondered. In our text for this morning, John chapter 1, I think this is exactly what John wants us to think about. John wants us to think of ourselves sort of in the future. He wants to see us in a larger story. And I'm just going to read this for you here, and, and we'll talk about it for just a moment. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into being He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of humankind, but of the will of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. We often read that verse and we extract a lot of theology from it. And, and what we do with it is we say things like, well, this is proof that Jesus is the Son of God and, and that there's a God the Father. And, and what we do is we often just fill out the Trinity and we get really abstract and, and academic and, frankly, gets a little boring, doesn't it? But I think one of the things that John is saying, and I think all of that is kind of present, but I think another thing that John is saying to his reader is that we're all caught up in a bigger story. We're all participating in this sort of cosmic duel between good and evil that he sort of lays out in terms of light and dark. The light came into the world and the darkness did not overcome it. John wants us to see ourselves in this larger cosmic story. He wants to see us as children of God, which would be unique at the time that he's writing. No one's really thinking like that, and, and no one's really <laughs> wondering about their life in those ways. They're probably just trying to survive. 
But what John wants his readers to do is sort of to step above the fray for a moment and to kind of take stock. And I think specifically he wants his readers to ask, you know, here at the beginning of this gospel, because they're getting ready to hear or to read the rest of the story of Jesus, he wants planted in their mind as they're reading, as they're encountering Jesus along the way, he wants them to ask, which side am I on? Am I being a force for good? Am I being a force for evil? And on and on and on. And that, that might be overly simplistic for us today, or it, it might be helpful. I don't know. But it's a way of John saying to the reader, you need to think about what you're doing. <laughs> you need to think about the ways that your life is going. You need to think about who you are becoming. And John kind of lays out for us that in the beginning was God, and there was the Word, and the Word was God, and all of this. And what he's saying is you don't get to choose the beginning. The beginning is set. The beginning's written. God has the beginning laid out. What you get to do, what we all get to do, is help write the ending. We get to participate in this story. We get to wonder how we're going to participate. We get to choose, to some degree, who we will become in this larger story that God is telling. And I would invite you all to do that. You know, the title of the sermon is Write Your Eulogy. And, you know, I, I, I told Jane not to do that <laughs> so many years ago, but I've kind of changed my stance and it might be a good practice. Not because you're going to hand it in to your minister and say, here it is verbatim, you don't have to do the work later on, just say these things and we'll be good, but as a way for you to look at it and read it and say, you know what? I don't know if I'm going that way, and I wonder what I have to do to become that person. I don't know if this was read, if it would match with what my life's actions have been, but how can I do that? Or maybe... When you write your eulogy, you want people to say, oh, you were kind. And, and you can wonder, as you read it back to yourself, well, how am I already kind? And how can I do that more often? Or maybe you want people to say that you're generous. And so you can say, well, how am I already generous? And how can I continue to promote that? Maybe you want to be courageous and you have to wonder, where are situations I can put myself in where I can act courageously? Whatever it is, whoever it is that you are becoming, it might be good for you to write your eulogy and just wonder, where is it lined up? Where is it sort of misaligned? You know, we all might benefit from doing that. As a church, I was wondering about this, and Sarah and I were, were talking on the, on the way down, you know, what would Fort Street's eulogy read in 200 years after the church is gone and, you know, global warming's taken over the planet and everything? What, what would people say about Fort Street? What would be our collective eulogy? How would they remember us? Certainly this <laughs> wonderful sanctuary, right? The beautiful organ. What else would they remember? What would they say about the people? 
What would they say about the pastors? What would they say? What would we want them to say? Here at the beginning of the year, as we take stock of our lives, as we think about our stories, as we think about the year ahead, I hope we'll pause for a moment and think about who we are, think about who we want to be, think about what's next, and think about writing the ending to our own story, not with pen and paper, but with our lives. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for today. God, thank you again for your word and for waking us up. God, I pray that no matter who we are or where we are on our journey, that you would show us the road ahead and teach us to walk beside you. In Jesus' name, amen.